1: hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. How's everybody doing out there today? You doing all right? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. This is Audio Judo. It is. Proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Yes, we are. Uh, My guess is that this episode will be coming to you after the first of the year. Probably true. So here's hoping that your 2021 is off to a better start than 2020. (laughs) Oh, boy. I'm sure we're ready to put that. A year to rest. Here's hoping. And all of its challenges and uh, make this next year great. Uh, If you had a chance to listen to our best albums of 2020 episode, please take a few minutes, drop us a line, tell us what you thought, or let us know what you thought the best albums of the year were, because we would love to hear your choices. And I, for one, want to hear new music all the time, so just let us know what we missed. Yeah, and
0: we can definitely forward those along, too. We might bring them up in a future podcast. If you tweet us or uh, get in touch with us on Facebook, obviously everybody else can see it. And if you email us, we might uh, post it out on Twitter or Facebook to just say, hey, you know, listener, you know, Matthew S. from Las Vegas. That's me, I think. That's you. All right. uh, Said that his favorite album of the year was blah, blah, blah. What do you guys think? I
1: did love... Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. It's a good record. It was a great album. Uh, Who knows? There might be a future episode in there somewhere. Right. So now we're going to celebrate the beginning of the year uh, by talking about a dark but beautiful record. We were talking about The Soul Cages Mm. by Sting, the third full-length solo album released by Sting, uh, released four years after his successful previous album, Nothing Like the Sun. But first, let's give a little background on the artist currently known as Sting. You mean Gordon Sumner? I do. You got a little background on uh, Gordo?
0: Gordon Sumner was his original name, Mm -hmm. uh, born October 2nd, 1951, in Walson, Northeast England.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, that and those details, that detail in particular, where he's from, plays a crucial role in this record.
0: Oh, yes. That is very, very
1: important. That's why I made sure it was in there. You know why people call him Sting, right?
0: Uh, So the story that I have heard was that in one of the bands he was in when he was younger, he used to wear a yellow and black sweater, a yellow and black striped sweater, I should say. It wasn't just yellow and black. That'd be weird. Right. And uh, somebody used to start calling him Sting.
1: Correct. Because he looked
0: like a bee or a wasp.
1: And he said that his wife calls him Sting. His mother called him Sting. If you passed on the street and said, hey, Gordon. He wouldn't even flinch. He would just walk past you because he wouldn't know who you were talking to. So that's good. As far as background is concerned. He had a deep affinity for music and the guitar, but was unable to make a go of it originally. Uh, So he went back to school, ended up getting his teaching certificate in 1974 and taught for two years. During this time, he played weekends and evenings with jazz groups in the local area, which would be the Newcastle area of Mm -hmm. England. In 1977, he was prepared to take a shot. So he moved from Newcastle to London, formed a group with Stuart Copeland and Henry Potavani, Called
0: this is like some band nobody's ever heard of.
1: The Police? I don't. I'm not sure. Yeah,
0: weird. I don't know if uh, anybody's ever heard of that or not. But uh,
1: I don't know. Yeah. Sounds like a reggae group. This is the first incarnation of the group. Uh, eventually, they would fire Padovani and hire Andy Summers, and The Police, as we know, were born. Fast forward six years, they would end their initial run with only five UK chart-topping albums, <laughs> garbage, six Grammys, multiple worldwide sold-out tours. And the distinction of being called the world's biggest band. But they were exhausted from the road. And because of the personalities within the band, they were exhausted of each other more than anything. But they never actually technically broke up. But they all just decided to pursue solo projects. And uh, that break lasted 24 years. So they reunited in 2007 for another sold-out worldwide tour. Of course. Because that's how it works. But we're not here to talk about the police. No. We're here to talk about Sting. I have got this list. Go ahead. got I go over real quick? Yeah, yeah. All
0: the awards this sting has won. It's a couple. Uh, just a few. He has received 17 Grammy Awards total, including Song of the Year for Every Breath You Take, three Brit Awards, including Best British Male Artist in 1984, an Outstanding Contribution in 2002. He has a Golden Globe, an Emmy, and four nominations for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. He hasn't won that yet? No. Loser. Uh, <laughs> 2019, he received a BMI Award for "Every Breath You Take," becoming the most played song in radio history. Wow! In 2002, Sting received the Ivor Novello Award for Lifetime Achievement for the British Academy of Songwriters, Composers, and Authors, and was also inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Excuse me, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Police in 2003. Also in 2003, he received his CBE from uh, Queen Elizabeth II. He was made a Kennedy Center Honoree at the White House in 2014. He was awarded the Polar Music Prize in. 2017, solo and with The Police combined, he has sold over 100 million records. In 2006, Paste ranked him 62nd of the 100 Best Living Songwriters, 63rd on uh, VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of Rock. Always the
1: litmus test.
0: Right? 80th in Q Magazine's 100 Greatest Musical Stars of the 20th Century. In 2018, he released the album 44-876, which was a collaboration with Jamaican musician Shaggy, which won the Grammy Award for Best Reggae Album in 2019. So he also has a Grammy for the best reggae album. Might as well. Most importantly, he was Fade Rutha in the 1984 classic Dune. Dune. Yeah. And, and he voiced uh, Zarm in the TV series Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Those are the most obviously important Obviously, his things. greatest achievements but I, yeah. right there at the very end. <laughs> I saved them for last.
1: Naturally. Obviously. So I mean he's okay. I mean he's a alright guy. So he has a he has a long list of accomplishments. But this is near the beginning of, of that. Mm -hmm. So after he left the police, he wanted to lean more in a jazz-oriented direction. He released his first solo record, Dream of the Blue Turtles, in 1985. And this album was loaded with the premier jazz instrumentalists of the day. Kenny Kirkland on keys, Omar Hakim on drums, Branford Marsalis on sax, certainly came out and made a statement that this wasn't the police anymore. Uh, This album would eventually go triple platinum and receive four Grammy nominations. Two years later, he returned with the much funkier Nothing Like the Sun. Not to be outdone on the name-dropping of his previous record, this one features Eric Clapton, Andy Summers, Manu Cache, and Annie Lennox. And Some of the songs would take a more somber, darker tone as he was grappling with the loss of his mother in 1986. That loss and another would most certainly color his next album in very powerful ways. Nothing like The Sun would get three Grammy nominations and end up double platinum. Uh, It would inspire also a short EP with versions of songs sung in Spanish and Portuguese by Sting himself. So apparently he's also (laughs) bi-trilingual. Jeez. Bi-trilingual? Bi or tri. I'm not sure which. So he's bisexually trilingual. That's what I meant to say. That's better. Well, I just, he will
0: sleep with anybody in three different languages. Three different
1: languages, that is correct. It's good to know. So Sting's father passed away in 1989. Yes. Uh, found himself at a bit of a crossroads as he was not able to write anything, and he had a serious case of writer's block and was really struggling. And it was out of that struggle that this album, The Soul Cages, was born. Uh, released on January 7th, 17th, sorry, 1991, this album would eventually hit number two in the U.S. and number one in the U.K., uh, his second solo number one, but it suffered Critically, as most critics didn't get it, where was the jazz? Where was the funk? This felt dark and quiet. Unlike what he had done so, it got very middling reviews, kind of C-plus average reviews. Perhaps as a result, sales dropped. Uh, It's still a platinum record, but much less so than his previous Mm. efforts. But it did win a Grammy.
0: Did win a Grammy. What were you going to say? I was going to say that, uh, speaking of his father passing away, he did say, uh, in when interviewed about this album, he says, My father died in 1989. Uh, we'd had a difficult relationship, and his death hit me harder than I'd imagined possible. I felt emotionally and creatively paralyzed, isolated, and unable to mourn. I just felt numb and empty, as if the joy had been leached out of my life. Eventually, I talked myself into going back to work, and this somber collection of songs was the result. I became obsessed with my hometown and its history, images of boats and the sea, and my childhood in the shadow of the shipyards.
1: Right. And that's, that's kind of where, where we end up here. So this record is a concept album based on the death of Sting's father, told as an allegory and pretty profoundly anti-religion. Yes. Uh, it is dark. It is introspective. It is it, the
0: reason I have been depressed for the last two weeks. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> but it is also wonderful. This happens to be my very favorite Sting solo record. I uh, should have known. And I think the first thing we need to talk about before we get to the track by track is the sound of this record. Yes. It was and still remains to this day one of the finest sounding records I have ever heard. It's clear, crystalline sound. It sounds almost manufactured and artificial in some spots, but it isn't. Now, Kyle, I'm not sure if you are familiar with the production technique that was used to record this album. I am not. Okay. It was recorded using a process called Q sound. Uh, It was supposed to be the next great wave of recording technique. Uh, The late 60s saw stereo, uh, then the 70s saw the brief appearance of quadraphonic sound, and there was then supposed to be this. So Hmm. QSound is essentially a filtering algorithm. It manipulates timing, amplitude, and frequency response to produce a binaural image. Systems like QSound rely on the fact that a sound arriving from one side of the uh, from one side of the listener, will reach one ear before the other, and that when it reaches the furthest ear, it is lower in amplitude and spectrally altered due to obstruction by the head. So, huh. unlike so like stereo, if you listen in headphones, it sounds like sounds were emanating across your head, like side to side, and any point in between. The theory behind Q sound was that sounds would seem to be happening above your head, or below, or anywhere around in 3D space. Oh, okay. So, so not just surrounding. Not just surround sound, but enveloping sound. Oh. So instead of like spectrally across and up and down, it was everywhere. So, Interesting. But like a lot of those fads, probably because of the cost, Yeah. only a handful of albums were ever produced that way. A couple of Pink Floyd solo albums, Madonna's Immaculate Con- Collection, and probably the one I've expected you to hear, The Adventures of MC Scat Cat and the Stray Mom. Oh
0: yes, that's a wonderful album.
1: I figured that was one of your favorites. Oh, it
0: is. It's top 10 for sure.
1: So over the years, the company transitioned their focus to a more lucrative market, video games, and they have been there ever since. And it is actually now called Q3D. They've changed their name, huh. so that's why it sounds so ridiculously good.
0: I'd be curious to know was that something that uh, uh, Hugh pushed?
1: yes pushed? Or absolutely, was that Sting. No, that was that was Hugh. That was the producer.
0: Okay. Uh, all you, all we've got to say about uh, Hugh is. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Phil Collins. You're welcome. That's that's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh what do you, do you have a you got some about the cover art? We uh, well, you know, that? let's talk a little bit about the artists on this in okay. a little bit more detail, if that's cool
0: with you. Yeah, yeah. Because this album is absolutely stuffed full of, of jazz talent. Mm-hmm. Amazing musicians. You mentioned it a little bit before, but I wanted to go into a little bit more detail about it. Uh, starting with Dominic Miller, who played uh, electric guitar and acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. If you don't know who he is, he's a solo musician, but he also works as a session musician. Uh, he's worked with people like King Swamp, The Chieftains, Phil Collins, uh, Manu Cachet, The Pretenders, John Tesh, Tina Turner, uh, along with tons of other people. And he's done 10 albums with Sting. Yep. Kenny Kirkland uh, on keyboards. He was a jazz musician uh, with a super accomplished solo career. He had a bunch of albums that he released on his own. He's also worked with uh, Chico Freeman, Dizzy Gillespie, Billy Hard, Elvin Jones, Wynton Marsalis, Bradford Marsalis, Delphio Marsalis, amongst a whole bunch of other people. He did six albums with Sting. David Sanchez, also on keyboards. Another session musician who uh, Peter Gabriel once referred to as the musician's musician. Uh, he's best known for his work with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, but he also worked with Santana, Eric Clapton, Stanley Clark, and Peter Gabriel, it,
1: amongst a bunch of others. He was the original keyboardist for the E Street Band.
0: Yeah. He's done three albums with Sting. Bradford Marsalis uh, on saxophone, former but future at the time we record, or they recorded this album, band leader for The Tonight Show Band from mm. 92 to 95. He's uh, won a Grammy uh, for jazz. He's worked with Art Blakely, Terrence Blanchard, Harry Connick Jr., Bella Fleck, Dizzy Gillespie, The Grateful Dead, Delphio Marsalis, who is his brother, Wynton Marsalis, who is his other brother, and James Taylor. He's done eight
1: albums with Sting. Is James Taylor his brother? James Taylor is not his brother. Oh. As far as I know, right. yeah, Stranger Things Have Happened. Okay. Catherine Tickle. Oh, the Northumbrian Pipes player? That
0: would be her. She's a, she has done six albums with Sting. Um, she's worked with other bands like the Chieftains, Alan Parsons, Oyster Band, Train. He likes that small pipe, he does. He does. It shows up uh, in quite a few different albums. Uh-huh. And I think she's been back, uh, like I said, six times yep. with Sting. Uh, Manu cachet we've mentioned a few times already. Uh, another session musician with an amazing solo career who worked with uh, Jeff Beck tears for fears herbie hancock eurythmics simple minds dire straits joe cetriani Tori amos and peter gabriel he did six albums with sting uh raymond cooper another session musician who worked with george harris and billy joel rod stewart donovan mick jagger art garfunkel roy orbison carly simon rick wakeman eric clapton pink floyd and elton john including playing in the million dollar piano right here in las vegas I saw uh and on elton john's farewell farewell yellow brick road tour also importantly uh, he has dabbled in acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, notable roles include the preacher from the movie Popeye in 1980, mm-hmm. uh, the technician who swats at the Beatle at the beginning of uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. I remember that guy. Yeah. Uh, and the functionary whispering in the ear of Jonathan Price's right ordinary Horatio Jackson character from my, 1989's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen.
1: Mm, all Terry Gilliam movies. All
0: Terry Gilliam movie, movies. So apparently he likes them. Finally, rounding this out, uh, Bill Sumner's. From the Headhunter he did uh, the Headhunters with Herbie Hancock, mm. which is a great album. Or, I'm sorry, a great band, not a great album. Uh, Los Hombres Calientes with Irvin Mayfield and Jason Marsalis. He also worked with Quincy Jones on the score for the Color Purple and Roots. So it's a who's who. It is a who's who of
1: incredibly talented session musicians. Sting does not fuck around. It, it, no, he doesn't. He takes he takes the best musicians he can get, which is anyone he wants, and that's what he does. Yeah, and it's reflected in the in the music, the musicianship. It's brilliant.
0: It, uh, I'm sorry if that was just a huge list of uh, names list. on top of names, but uh, it's really crazy when you start talking about this, this level of musician, how intertwined they all are mm-hmm. with other fantastic musicians. Definitely. If you ever want to fall into a weekend-long hole of researching like you know, musicians, look up any Sting album, see who played on it, and then start researching their music, and you'll just disappear for 12 hours. That's
1: true. Did you
0: do that? I did. I lost a whole Sunday last weekend. (laughs) Wait, do I know What else is this person playing on? Oh, yeah, I love this album. I should go download it. I haven't
1: listened to it in years. Oh, hey, who's this? Wait, Um, what? Ooh, You fell for the oldest trick in the book. It fell for the oldest trick in the book. So the cover. Yes. Cover uh, uh, painting is a commissioned art piece by Scottish artist Stephen Campbell, made exclusively for this album. Mm -hmm. It's a nice, simple watercolor painting with a dry dock ship, a very literal reference to the album within. Go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say it's got a, a looks like a, a flaming torch sitting down below it, but it's gigantic. And I, I couldn't tell is that something else am I misinterpreting what that
1: is? No, it's like because they were building ships, I believe it's a ship like a welding torch. Yes. I believe it's a ship being built. The cover is more notable for what it doesn't have, though. Other than a 2010 release called Symphonicities See what you're doing there. Synchronicity, (laughs) symphonicities. This record is the only Sting solo release to not have a picture of Sting on the front of the record. That tells me so much. It tells me that this is a very personal record and very important to him for him to forego his formidable ego and throw another picture of him with messy hair on the cover. Yeah. Like, this is clearly a very intimate work that doesn't need him on the cover. He wants it to be about something else. Also... This is one of the first CD releases to eliminate the cardboard long box. Yes, I had that note too. And use a four-fold CD packaging method known as DigiPack.
0: Which is pretty cool, and I'm sad that it went out of uh, went out of style for just the jewel case. Because what was cool about it is, so in case anybody doesn't know out there, uh, the long pack was the way that they used to package CDs in the 80s. Because they were competing with vinyl albums still. And obviously a vinyl album is, what, 14 by 14 inches on the cover-ish? 13, 14 12 inches. by 12. 12 by 12, 14 by 14, something like that. I should have measured before I did this. But anyways, <laughs> I didn't have anything 14 inches long. I only had something 11. So, So, anyways. That was a horrible joke, and I apologize to the entire listening audience. Uh, anyways, uh, they were competing with uh, albums still in the early 80s. And albums, obviously, one of the best things about them is you have this huge space for cover art. You have this huge amount of real estate to put whatever type of art you want on there and sell it to people. And with CDs and cassettes, they were tiny. You know I mean? A CD case is maybe five by six Mm -hmm. and a cassette is even smaller. So what they would do is package them in these huge cardboard things. So the CD long boxes were as wide as a CD is, but 18 inches tall. Mm -hmm. It also helped with, you know, some anti-theft stuff, Mm -hmm. but- more importantly, it gave you a lot more room to display the art. The problem was people went home, ripped that off, threw it in the trash, and they just created a giant piece of cardboard and plastic trash that now sat around in a dump somewhere for several years.
1: Right, Not very envi- environmentally friendly. Yeah.
0: And Sting, obviously being a very concerned about the environment, was very good with uh, coming up with these ideas and saying, hey, we should push this because we know this is going to be a huge album. We know a lot of people are going to buy it we should uh, you know, save this. Think about how much garbage we're not going to be putting into landfills by not packaging it this way. Smart idea. So the fourfold is pretty cool because it looks like a long box. It's almost as tall as a regular long
1: box. Mm-hmm.
0: But then when you get it, you take it home and you rip a little thing off the bottom and you fold it up so it's now the size of a jewel case. So not only can you keep it because it'll fit on your shelf with all the rest of your CDs, if you want to look at that art, you can fold it open and see it. Smart. It's a great idea. And I've I've never actually seen one of these in real life. Oh, really? No. I have uh
1: well, stick around. I've seen pictures. A, I could get one from You've got one somewhere. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> cool.
0: I might have to check that out cuz I, I I've read about them cuz there were uh, there was another album that we did early on in this uh podcast that was one as well. i hmm. mm, I have to look it up.
1: No, but I don't remember.
0: Anyways, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool
1: too. That is cool. We do a little track by track? Yeah, let's do it. Island of Souls yes. opens this album. Uh, the first song sets the table for the whole story. Yeah, Narrative of the album is written from a young man's perspective. Billy. Billy lives in a small town in England near the coast. His father is a riveter for a shipbuilding company, and the family lived so close to the shipyards that as the ship was built, the sun would get eclipsed by the size of the boat. Uh, there are similarities in the setup to the story of Sting's life. Uh, he grew up in a shipbuilding town on the coast of England called Wall's End. More about that later. Uh, His father was not a shipbuilder. He was an engineer and also a milkman. But in his autobiography, Sting remarked that his father had always wanted to be a sailor and living that close to the ships and knowing that about his father certainly colored these experiences. Sting said this. He said, I'd reached the age of 38. I wanted to assess my life, figure out what had gone wrong, what had gone right. I started at the beginning. I started with my first memory. As Soon as I remembered the first memory of my life, everything started to flow. The first memory was of a ship, because I lived next to a shipyard when I was young. It was a very powerful image of this huge ship towering above the house. Tapping into that was a godsend. I began with that, and the album just flowed. More on the lyrics in a second. But the start of the record, and all throughout it, it is hard to separate the sound of the record. It sounds very English. Yes. Uh, It has this overarching nautical theme. Lyrically, and that is mirrored very heavily in the musical motifs that they use. There are gaps all the way throughout that allow, like, the wind to take over. It's very breathy, and the beginning of the song starts with the Northumbrian small pipe work of Catherine Tickle, like mm-hmm. we mentioned, mentioned, which of course places this song in a very specific place. It's very isolated. It's very alienated. Uh, right away, you become very aware of the use of Q sound and how the sounds of the cymbals are kind of like bouncing all over the place and the very distinct strumming of the acoustic guitar. It's all very gorgeous, beautifully mixed. Lyrically, it starts by telling how Billy's father uh, works in the shipyards six days a week with nothing really to look forward to. They build and build, launch the ship, and then start over. Hopeless existence. Billy's father has dreams but realizes that he can never save enough money for any of that, so he turns to drinking, which, you know. Uh, And Billy, seeing how his future most likely lays out just like this, cries every night because he's got nothing to look forward to. Uh, Musically, this part of the song is in 6-8 time, but to really accentuate the very martial existence of their lives. The drummer, Manu Ketché, plays on the 1 and 4 instead of the 3 and 6, which makes it sound very military, very martial. And this is what I'm talking about right here.
0: Love the musical industrial sounds that right. make it sound like you're in a shipyard. It sounds like a welder going off. It sounds like a hammer being hit. It sounds
1: like rivets being driven. I don't think that's an accident.
0: No, no, I guarantee it's not an accident. It's absolutely intentional. But I, I love that it's it wasn't those sounds being transposed over it. They found musical sounds that sounded enough like them that it immediately draws your brain to that.
1: Exactly. Connection. Later in the song, he changes that beat to make it a little more swingy, which is about the time lyrically that his dad is no longer working because of his accident. And I don't think that musical change is an accident either. Knowing the control freak that Sting is and the attention to detail it gives to all of his parts, especially the drums, because that's why him and Stuart Copeland hated each other so much. (laughs) This seems very intentional. So Billy's dad comes home injured. They give him a brass watch, a check, and three weeks to live. And that night, Billy dreams of a ship that could carry him and his father away from there, fulfilling that dream for the both of them. And that last line of the song, Newcastle ship without coals. We set sail for the island of souls. Is very important because it comes around again. Hmm. You have more about this song?
0: No, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that uh, that Northumbrian small pipe is fantastic in this though. I
1: love it. Starts and ends with it. It's just puts you. It puts it in a very specific spot. And then uh, the next song is uh, all this time, which you know, continuation of the story of Billy. This song was the real hit. Quote hit off the record reached number five on the Billboard Top One Hundred. So that's a That's a hit. Yeah. For being what is essentially a really dark song. That's some pretty good numbers, right? Yeah. It's weirdly upbeat for a song with lyrics this dark. Uh, Sting talked about that. He put some playfulness into it. He took a really dark song about his father dying and put up music with it. Several reviews around the time of its release, and they were all really negative. Basically taking him to task for putting such a heady subject in with a happy tune. And Sting says that that's the beauty of music. doesn't all have to be sad and gloomy to tell a, stat, a sad story. And that there are other ways to go about it. That same review said something to the effect of why can't Sting write a simple pop tune? Huh. My answer to that is he can, but why would you want him to? Yeah. like That'd be that'd be boring. It'd be kind of boring. And lyrically, like you said, this, fa- uh, this furthers the story of uh, Billy and his dad, who is now presumably on his deathbed because uh, the priests have been called in mm-hmm. for last rites. The young priest and the old priest. It's very subtle at the beginning, not so much at the end, anti, anti-Catholic tone of the record. Mm-hmm. So for a young man of 18, as I was at the time, battling with my own existential demons and reasons to rebel against the church and faith that I had been raised in, this record spoke to me in, in a lot of ways. Not only was I grappling with the loss of two close classmates who had passed away during the school year, they had both succumbed to cancer, but I was uh, my extended family was starting to get older and sicker, you know? grandparents, all older aunt, aunts and uncles. Uh, I was angry at the church, at God or whatever, and hearing someone express that through song, the true communicator, was really important to me. And besides that, this album would surface again personally in 2004 uh, when I was dealing with the death of my mom. And there are a lot of threads of grief running through this record, and it really hits home. It's very specific. Back to the song, though. It really paints this great picture of small-town England. Sad Shire horses Mm -hmm. walking home in the sodium light. Had to look that one up when I was 18. The sodium light? Sodium lights are, were primarily used for street lights and produce a very characteristic yellow hue.
0: Yeah, that's actually, um, if you ever watch any of the movies that were shot, like on the uh, the Sunset Strip in uh, Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. the, those night shots, they specifically shot there because they had an abundance of sodium lighting up and down the street. And it gave it that very specific yellow glow. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years ago, Los Angeles, I don't know if it was the city or Los Angeles County, replaced all of them with LEDs because they're way more efficient. They last forever, blah, 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 And there was this huge outcry. People like Steven Spielberg and uh, uh, lots of other famous directors, I don't have the names in front of me, unfortunately, but lots of other famous directors came forward and were like, you cannot do this. It's going to ruin the ability to make films here. They're going to look completely different. Now it looks like this bright, white, washed out mess. It looks horrible. It's not the Sunset Strip that we saw saw and fell in love with on film. And L.A. said, <laughs> did it anyways. Ruined. Ruined. (laughs) We can never film here again.
1: Garbage now. (laughs) Back to our mansions, boys. That's right. Screw them. Find some other yellow lights. Go ahead. (laughs) That's it. That's all I was going to say. Oh. Uh, And so he talks about the river flowing endlessly after, you know, after he talks about the, the sodium lights and that very, that expression that time marches on, regardless of what's happening to the small insignificant humans that inhabit the little corner of the globe that they're at, the river Never stops, mm-hmm. like time just keeps going. So enter the priests. Mm. And he captures them so well a young one, an old one, one to learn, one to teach. Perfectly captured, fussing and flapping in black. Here they are in song. song yeah terribly horribly not happy lyrics it's one of those songs where if you're not paying attention you're like i love that song and then it's like oh no what did he say say his dad was dead yes yes he did oh man so stung stung Stung. so this is the post tense of sting yes that's what stung that's what you have to refer to him as when you're talking about him in the past so on this album stung yes he does this great mashup in the next part where he mixes uh one of the beatitudes With Matthew 20, 24 from the Bible, and I am very familiar with these things. So the line is actually, it is easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Billy is just sitting there listening to his dad, who's just about dead, laughing about all this, knowing that his existence meant very little. All of what he accomplished meant very little, and you squandered this world we live in. So why would you even want it anymore? And that's kind of what he's grappling with. Billy asked if Jesus existed How could he never, how come he never lived where they lived? And we get a little taste of what Wall's End is like, the town where Sting grew up. So it was a Roman garrison town at the very east end of Hadrian's Wall, built in 122 AD, parts of which still stand. And Romans came there and lived and died, prayed to their gods, but their gods didn't listen to them either. And all that was left at the end of it were some stones, right? Yeah. And at the end of this very depressing song about how life means very little in the grand scheme of things, Billy expresses his wish to bury his dad at sea because if he couldn't live his life there like he wanted to, then maybe he could have his attorney there instead. Hmm. And that's such a—I mean, it's—it's it's a terribly depressing song, but there, but but he puts he puts hope into it, injects it at the very end, like there there can be. There can be something good coming out of this. Yeah. There's so much Catholic stuff on here, which I didn't have to research.
0: Yeah, well, I would imagine. Yeah, it's uh, a... That's, uh, that's the that's the type of stuff that a lot of times get, gets past me, because I'm like, yeah, that's an interesting line. dum 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 And then I'm like, later on, you're like, that's from the Bible. And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course,
1: yes, the, I totally knew that. The line in the song is, it's better to be poor than be a fat man in the eye of the needle. Yeah. And he kind of mashed it up a little bit. And Still, I think on purpose... Good, Mad about you? Aw. I'm not mad about you.
0: Oh, this next song is called Mad about you. It's a, sadly, it is not the theme song to Mad about you. No,
1: disappointed. <laughs> that, that. It's just like I weird, bassy. It's almost yeah. very It It
0: is, but a lot of '90s sitcoms were like that.
1: That's true. This is a so this is a very wonderful song and uh, has absolutely nothing to do with the theme. Yeah, it's on just the rest of the record, slotted in here. Outlier. I mean, I guess for sure. I
0: I would say that it does kind of have something to do with theme because, like you said, there's this overarching anti Catholic sort of theme. And then in the middle, there's a biblical story. Yes. So, yes. So, (laughs) this is inspired by King David's story from the Bible. And, uh, Sting said about this, uh, it's inspired by the story of King David and Bathsheba. Uh, these stories of murder and obsessive, jealous love appeal to me for some reason. Yes, those lines, there are no victories in all our histories without love, have the quintessential Sting idea that romantic love outweighs global issues. I really believe that. Love is continuity of the species. It's the most important thing. That's why love songs are immortal. A political song will be dated within a year. It took me a long time to learn
1: that. And I get that. And I get, okay, fine. Fine. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But this is definitely the <laughs> outlier. Yes. Uh, and it's really far afield from the rest of the record, in my opinion. But we're going to talk about it anyway. So uh, the first thing you start to take notice is that the rest of the band is starting to show up now. Mm-hmm. First two songs, obviously, music- musicianship is great, but but there's no real standout moments uh, until now. Menu Cache on drums, Dominic Miller, like everyone you said, all giants of the industry. But they really start to play on this track. And there's this lovely oboe solo on the song by Paula Pepperell, just. Beautiful. Lyrically, you're right. This is somewhat of a loose retelling of the David and Bathsheba story. Again, going back to the Bible told from David's point of view, as opposed to Bathsheba's point of view. So I can cover this, no problem. Second book of Samuel, if you are not familiar, David was King David at the time, and he was taking an evening stroll, uh, and he saw Bathsheba taking a bath, and he wanted her, and he ended up getting her pregnant. In an effort to conceal his sin, he recalled Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, from the battlefield in the hopes that he would have he would have sex with her and he could claim that it was Uriah's kid, not his. Hmm. Uriah refused because while they were constricted into the military, they weren't supposed to have sex with anybody. So he didn't. After several refusals, David just ended up sending him to the front lines and made sure he got put in a place that would have Uriah killed, which is exactly what happened. So these biblical guys are first rate. Let me point out, they're just really swell guys. Sound like it. God was apparently now pissed at David. So after Bathsheba gave birth, the baby died within a few days, and David accepted that as his punishment for the sin. However, that wasn't the end, and this is really where it gets fucked up. (laughs) David's punishment came to pass years later when one of David's much-loved sons, Absalom, led an insurrection that plunged the kingdom into civil war. Moreover, to manifest his claim to be the new king... Absalom had sexual intercourse in public with ten of his father's concubines, which could be considered a direct tenfold divine retribution for David's taking the woman, woman of another man, in secret. Hmm. So great, this is the Bible, folks. It's better than any tawdry novel you can find at the go- grocery store. Wonderful, wholesome stories. People for in the the whole nailing family. ten concubines in public. You know the king's concubines. The king's concubines. It's a great. Uh, it's good. It's a good story. It's something you read your kids right before bed. Really, say your prayers. And here's the story of David and Bathsheba.
0: Why was she named Bathsheba? Because she was taking a bath.
1: And Sheba. She Sheba was. Sheba hanged taking... him. <laughs> Long or short, it's a story. Uh, it's a song about obsession and love, but not necessarily in that order. So, uh, was Bathsheba Uriah's heap? I knew, I, I was you knew waiting was for, you, up, wait for you, you to make a Uriah's you knew, heap. Comment. You knew that was
0: coming up, didn't you?
1: Son of a bitch. Ah, yeah. There uh, still a good song though. Yeah. But maybe it was better suited for some sort of compilation album.
0: Agreed. I feel like it, it I feel like it was just slotted in here for no real reason. Like, I mean, you know, like I said, you could make the argument it's a an anti-religious song, and then in the middle there's this biblical story that's sort of a uh, pointing at, like, look how ridiculous the Bible is. Wah, 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 wah.
1: But <laughs> I hope it makes that sound. It does. Any one of those sound bibles that you just open up and it goes,
0: wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fantastic. <laughs> I'm making
1: one. You should. For, uh, right now. Jeremiah Blues? Yes, part one. Part one. As far as I could tell in all of Sting's catalog, there was never a part two. Um, so I'm not sure what that means. But, mm. but here it is. Here's the funk that everyone has been waiting for since I last listened to Nothing Like the Sun. And I can't really figure out if this song fits in lyrically with the rest of the record or not. But to me, I like to believe it is more of an internal monologue of Billy's as he's wandering around the town after his father passed away.
0: All right, I'd buy that.
1: So it's the whole feeling of helplessness after you lose someone that you're close to. That everyone looks as if their lives continue to go on unaffected, which of course they do. But you are saddled with the grief, this aching pain that you can't shake and it makes you piff pissed off at people for no apparent reason. (laughs) Quite honestly, things don't really make sense anymore. Uh, The line in the song, a Pope claimed he had been wrong in the past, this was a big surprise. Catholics believe in the rule of papal infallibility, that if the Pope says it, it must be true and it must be right. So him saying a Pope said he was wrong in the past, this is some weird topsy-turvy world, which kind of makes me think that Billy was... he was kind of out of it right now. Yeah. Now for this song... I know that this was uh, Kenny Kirkland on keys and it's such great work. And you mentioned Kenny before and who he'd play with, but he's one of those really tragic jazz figures. You know, he's a bebop artist played with yeah. Wynton Marsalis and all the people that you named in 1998. He was uh, recording with the Marsalises, And the producer remarked Marsali, <laughs> Mar- Marsali, Uh producer remarked to Kenny that he wasn't in good shape. And he suggested that he go to the doctor. And Kenny said, after the session, if I go now, they will make me check into the hospital. He went and was diagnosed with congestive heart failure and told he needed surgery. He kind of wrote it off as twenty years of abusing his body on the road without adequate vacations and a lousy diet, and he gave himself a fifty-fifty chance of surviving any surgery. For that reason, he just accepted his fate, and went on the road with Branford Marsalis, and a couple weeks later, he was dead in his apartment of heart failure. So yeah. it's just a tragic story. That is
0: super sad. It's just terrible. I I hate stories like that about musicians, especially just where it's like you know you. Might have been able to get some help, and they're just like, meh. Yeah. Uh,
1: I've been abusing myself all this time. Why stop now? Yep. Nothing's going to happen, or maybe it will. <laughs> Whatever. So one thing I've always wondered about is the Jeremiah in the title of this song. Uh, my feeling, if you follow the Catholic premise behind the record, is that he is referring to the prophet Jeremiah. Hmm. He wrote the book of Jeremiah, as well as the book of Kings and the book of Lamentations. He's often referred to as the weeping prophet, as a lot of the artwork that is representative of him has him shown that way. The Primary tenets of his prophecies involve redemption and repentance. And there's a line in the song that leads me down that path. Everybody wants to look the other way when something wicked this way comes. Sometimes they tie a thief to the tree. Sometimes I stare. Sometimes it's me. Now, I don't know if there's any intentionality behind the naming of the song or if the two things are completely unrelated, but my money is on this being about Jeremiah, the prophet. Uh, There's a ton of Catholic imagery on this record. I have no reason to believe that this would be any different. But Sting, if you are listening, email me at info at audiojudo.com and tell me that it's just a name and I will back off.
0: Could you imagine if we get an email? This is Sting. Please don't call me Gordon.
1: (laughs) Why do you sound like Ringo? I don't know. That's weird. Or Paul.
0: That just happens. Is that Paul? Yeah, I don't know who it was. Uh, Why should I cry for you? Why should you? So this song, the first time I heard this, I immediately thought, do you remember in the 90s when they sold like in uh, Walmart or Target? On the end of some aisle, they would have that display with a bunch of, like, world music on it. Yeah. And it had the big, like, three-by-three-inch buttons. You could push the button, and it would play a
1: little sample from that album. Oh, like, you can, can still find button. that, those oh. crappy things in, like, really bad, like, uh Oh, yeah, I'm sure this still around
0: somewhere. This song, for whatever reason, reminds me of that. <laughs> Just a picture, like, you would push one of... And then one was, like, whale song... <laughs> and just for whatever reason, the first time I heard this song, when I was listening to this album, I was like, yeah, that's this song would be on one of those albums.
1: This song gets me every time. But it's, uh, it's such an open statement of grief and the inability yeah. to come to terms with it painted and dotted with these amazing visuals that he uses. So this song is more or less the closer of the first side of the record. Mm-hmm. And from here on out, it's... All about the grief he's been dealing with, but also he starts to utilize colors to tell his story very animately, and all the nautical themes get ramped up to 11. So first of all, the song has a very Peter Gabriel vibe to it, which would lend itself to that world music that you're speaking of. Perhaps influenced by the keyboard loop and processed drums that are used, very much the influence of producer Hugh Padgham, who worked with Gabriel and Genesis in the later years. And it is this repeated vocal part, the who? Here's some of that right.
0: Instrument that makes it almost sounds like a frog. It's that little like woo-deep. not the louder forward one, but it's very much buried in the background.
1: I have no idea what he's playing back there
0: because I tried to figure out what the heck that was and I, I couldn't. I, I was like, How do I search for this? Like, <laughs> you can't Google woo-deep. like that. that I don't know make what it is. I have no
1: idea what. Well, let's just go with like frog.
0: Okay, so there's a frog in the background. Someone's
1: playing the frog, Ray, uh, Ray Cooper's playing the frog okay. in the back.
0: You just pet it right down the spine and it goes. Woo-deep, woo-deep.
1: So the, that that part sense. that part of the song is, has a very special memory as well. Hmm. Uh, as you could tell, I was am a big fan of this record, and I used to have this album cover as poster in my bedroom. Ah. Uh, also, show consultant Chris and I went and saw Sting twice on this tour. Once at Cobo Arena in Detroit, and once at DTE Energy Music Theater, used to be called Pine Knob, in Michigan. Hmm. Um, the second one, uh, we were under the roof and had pretty good seats, and he started playing this song somewhat organically. Chris and I started doing the woo song, part, and just that part, I'm not sing along to the rest of the song. And we were able to get a bunch of people around us to do it kind of with us. And it's just this real cool moment with a bunch of strangers bonding over a song part and making it a real memorable moment, for me at least anyway. Like it was really cool, just rows of people doing that sound. And it's, damn it, I miss concerts, you know, <laughs> really miss concerts and stuff like that. But it's just a little short, little story there. <laughs> uh, so this was the first song uh, that Sting wrote for the record, and it was, according to him, the place where the floodgates opened, both yeah. lyrically and emotionally, as he finally got to a spot where he began to accept his father's death. Um, and he said this: He said, "As soon as I got that down, the thing that was... Uh, as soon as I got that down, the thing was written two or three weeks. It poured out." Although it was painful, it almost wrote itself, free associating. I only realized what it was about as I went along. The journey came, a journey back to where I came from, the idea of death. Lines about this father thing kept coming up. Something was saying I had to deal with it. So he he does drop a number of things. He uh, name drops the Stones of Pharaoh, and that's not P-H-A-R-O-A-H. That's actually F-A-R-O-E. Uh, more water references. They are actually islands of Pharaoh off the coast of Denmark, way out in the North Sea. Uh, And he contemplates uh, the most painful of all questions. How do I mourn for someone that I've lost? Does it mean anything to anyone if I just say out loud that I loved you in a particular way? And if I do cry for you, do you want me to? Does it mean anything at all? And he also references the dark angels follow me over a godless sea, which is important because those also make a return Mm -hmm. appearance. Love this record so much because there's so much to unearth here, far more than any other Sting release, and it captures me like emotionally in ways that none of his stuff ever did. Uh, I've loved this music for years. Bits and pieces of every record I've liked, but this one, top to bottom, every time just captures me. Hmm. I just love it. I can't find a weak spot.
0: Hmm. Well, let's uh, flip this thing over. St. Agnes and the Burning Train. So... It's instrumental.
1: Yeah. To open the B side of the album. So if you are very into this album by this point, then you were probably getting a little overwhelmed because it's a heavy record. And this song arrives as a welcome breather. Yeah. Sleek little Latin-inspired acoustic piece. It sounds almost like an Italian folk song. And I think that's very intentional. But hold on, let's explore the name for a second. Yeah. Uh, For the longest time, I couldn't really get my head around it. It seemed like it was in two different worlds. St. Agnes, for any Catholic like myself, is a pretty familiar name. Agnes is a virgin martyr, martyred when she was 12 or 13 in and around the year 300. Uh, She apparently was very pretty and sought after by many suitors, which she spurned for religious devotion. Uh, The Romans reported her as a Christian. She was dragged through the streets naked to a brothel. Many men tried to rape her there, and none of them were successful as each man was struck blind during his attempt. Hmm. Uh, Then they tried to burn her. That didn't work. So the officer in charge beheaded her. Uh, Her skull is still on display for veneration in the Piazza Navona in Rome. Hmm. Are you familiar with patron saints, Kyle? A little bit. Okay, I I did look this
0: up. I know that she's the patron saint of uh, virgins, uh-huh. young girls, engaged
1: couples, yeah, rape victims, yeah. chastity, yeah, and gardeners. Yes, in a truly Catholic move, because they had no one left and wondered who would intercede for them. Gardeners.
0: Yeah, this seems like a strange choice there. So but the so- rest of them I get from the story. <laughs> The gardeners, I mean, was one of the rapists a gardener? Maybe. Or was was one of them like about to rape her? And he's like, no, I must get back to my roses. So you're familiar like- with the role of the
1: patron saint? Yes. Yeah. So if for anyone out there who doesn't know, in the Catholic tradition, each saint has a group of people that— that or has a group that people can pray to for intercession to God, basically suggesting that this omnipotent, all-seeing, all-knowing God is too busy to hear everything. So if you pray to St. Christopher when you were about to travel somewhere, being the patron saint of travelers, he will go to God and keep you safe. Yeah, that makes sense. So apparently, we had no one left for gardeners. You know, God, someone keeps coming to intercede about their chrysanthemums, but well, give him Agnes. She give him Agnes. I mean... She, she's a little busy with the virgins, but gardening seems right up her alley she's fine she'll she'll take care of it so i knew the load, story <laughs>
0: load more work load more work on one of the seven women uh, mentioned in the canada mass correct uh, why not uh all the guys in here we're busy with you know our
1: whatever uh put some more of the workload on agnes over poor there. agnes right so i knew the story of agnes but i couldn't really rectify the burning tree train, train, burning train. See, and that's, it always did that in my head. Burning tree made more sense. I thought it was a misprint mm-hmm. that made more sense with the burning at the stake business. But then I came across a story that clears it up a little. Yeah, You obviously have that same story. Yes. Why do you go ahead and read it? So it turns out that
0: Sting's grandmother's name was Agnes and she was a very independent woman. Uh, very, uh, didn't want to be helped by anybody. And uh, right before Christmas one year, she was coming to visit the family. She got on the train train took off, and then it caught on fire. <laughs> That's, yeah. That's the story. That's it. The train literally caught on fire, and she thankfully survived and got off the train and ended up being at uh, one of his concerts uh, considerably later on where he w- she was thanked in the audience.
1: There you go. So, so all that information for just a small little acoustic instrumental piece. Hmm. It's out there.
0: This uh, definitely, like the name immediately, because in my car, it cuts off the rain part of the word train. So that was the first place I saw the name of it. And I was like, St. Agnes and the burning. T-. What's the, t-? just the, what's the, maybe it's in the lyrics. And then I listened to it. I'm like, I it's said a it's- fucking instrumental. <laughs> There's no lyrics. of what it how do I know what the T is? It's
1: the burning T. The burning T.
0: <laughs> so then I, was, I was trying to guess on my way to work. I was like, tree, trash can. Tree would have made more sense. Right? Trash can, burning trash can. I'm like, that makes sense. Homeless people, maybe, you know, whatever. But, uh,
1: Nope.
3: No. Uh,
1: The Wild Wild Sea is Mm -hmm. uh, next. Now, if there's a song out there that better captures the feeling of being on a boat in the middle of a maelstrom, I don't know it. Yeah. First is the fact that the North Umbrian small pipe from the first song makes a return in this song, capturing that somber, gloomy tune. And there's so much going on in this song. Pop, rock, jazz. More than anything, there's this pain in which I feel he's like trying to say goodbye, and he does so with this color palette. Uh, more than any song in his catalog, he uses color to draw a picture. Black sail in a yellow sky. Sheets of white linen. Sky the color of clay. Galloping line of white horses. All come together to form this picture of goodbye. Because it's clear what's happening here. Sting is absolutely lost and despondent at this point over the loss of his father. He has no direction and he's caught in the storm. And finally, he realizes that he is not in charge of this situation. His father is steering the ship through the storm and that's the power of grief. Who is in charge? The memory of someone you lost or you? And it's a tough realization when you discover it isn't you and you were lost as how to reclaim it. This line between acceptance and bargaining, which is the next song, comes this weird purgatory where you know that you are not in charge of it and you feel helpless to change it. And he ends up succumbing a little bit to his old religion on this part.
2: for it for me when the bridge to heaven is broken
1: lyrically wonderful, musically challenging and interesting. Uh, this is my favorite track on the record by far. Uh, there's so much to love here and it's just great. I feel like I could do an entire episode about just this song. Really? And maybe I will. And <laughs> uh, what do you have? You have.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that I really like that uh, sort of coming full circle again uh, along with the Northumbrian small pipes in the Island of Souls. You know, like like I mentioned, there's that very mechanical sounding, not natural noises that are created in the background. Right, and here it's exactly the opposite. It is very natural sounding. Everything flows together with one another, and it's very chaotic. Mm. But it's this very natural sounding. I don't want to say it's an, the sounds of the ocean because it's not, obviously, but it's meant to Emulate. make you think about the sounds of the ocean. Yeah, and it's obviously again. You know, It's Sting being very precise about the way that things are played and very precise about the way that things are laid out to a point where it almost sounds unnatural, mm-hmm. but it gives you that impression of nature. Yeah, I like it. The Soul Cages. Title track? The Title track. Do you know what the Soul Cages are? I'm sure that you do.
1: I do, but you could go ahead and tell me about
0: them. It's a fairy tale called The Soul Cages, written by Thomas Kiteley. Uh, Originally published as a piece of a genuine Irish folk tale in T. Croft and Croker's Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland, uh, published from 1825 to 1828, depending upon who you ask. The story features a male marrow, which is a merman, uh, inviting a local fisherman to his undersea home. The soul cages in the title uh, refer to the collection of human souls that the merman has kept in his home, as you do. Who doesn't have a collection of human souls
1: kept in cages in their home? I thought we all did. I have several. Oh. Yeah, it's a, I, he He borrowed it, essentially. Yeah. Title track released as a single, responsible for the first ever Grammy for Best Rock Song in mm-hmm. 1992. Uh, that was the first year that award was actually given. Uh, and it is not a widely known song at all. Uh, definitely the only real rock song on the record yeah. has these big power chords, straight ahead drums. And while I think it is an excellent song, it is my least favorite song on the record.
0: I was just going to mention while we're there. Yeah. Uh, it beat out...
1: Oh yeah, what did it beat? I didn't even look that
0: Metallica's up. Enter Sandman. Oof. Jane's Addiction's Been Caught Stealing. Oof. Brian Adams' Can't Stop This Thing We Started. Now nah, that's crap. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' Learning to Fly. And Queen Wright's Silent Lucidity. Wow, there's some big hitters in there. Those are some big hitters, and this song beat
1: all of them for wow. the first ever. Ghosting. Right? So your least favorite song on the album Part of that re- beat <laughs> all of those songs. That's right. Songs. Part of the reason, I think, is that is the weird accent that Sting seems to adopt in this song? Hmm. Um, he used it once before on this record on *Jeremiah Blues*, but not to this extent. Um, I'm not going to play it, but I encourage you to go listen to it. It's weird. It's it's. I don't know if he's trying to like do a character or what, but there's he. It's not his normal accent. It's very strange. Maybe he's the marrow. Ooh, he could be the merman, and he's like, uh, this is what a merman sounds like. And it doesn't like neatly fit into the structure of the record. It's it's kind of close, you know. The demonic fisherman, yeah, and maybe he's bargaining for you know he and his dad's life.
0: Well, that's that's the story that a lot of people seem to think that it's telling is that it's either Billy having another dream because he was in the previous song on board a boat and fell and hit his head, and he's now having this dream where he is underwater meeting a merman, mm. and uh, he sees the soul of his father, and he has to have a drinking competition with the merman to win back the soul of his father. As you do, you other know. Other people think that, giant that it's... Giant drinking contest. Yeah, you know. Other people suggest that maybe it's a, uh, just just a metaphor for that. It's not quite as literal as it seems in the song. Why does it, it always
1: come down to like a giant drinking contest like that? I feel like like um, any sort of demonic fisherman or demon entity, you know, Crossroads, Robert Johnson, I, why do I, I feel like they should be able to drink everything in sight and not have a problem with it.
0: Well, in this case, uh, Ireland... Yeah. I think that's all I need to say. Oh. All right. So moving on. So drinking competition. All right. That clears that no, up. Yeah. No offense to the Irish, but. It
1: uh, always comes down to that, though. Yeah. Why can't it be like a stone skipping contest? or Ooh, that? that'd be cool. Something like well, that. Well, I or, mean. Or, or like a hot dog eating contest. And uh, what Joey Nathan does, it kills everybody. Devil went down to Georgia. It was a violin off. Uh, true. That's true. It was a violin off. Hmm. All right. So anyway, we digress. Yes, we do. Uh, Sting's nearing acceptance here. It's getting to the point where he realizes that his life will never be the same without his dad, and that's okay, and that it's okay to move on. Got to die a little bit to continue living. And the album comes full circle when he concludes this song with a verse from the first song, Island of Souls. Beautifully constructed and pulled together, although not my favorite song. It does tie in well at the very end. But he's not done yet. When the Angels Fall. The closer to this album and the closer to Sting's Catholicism. Very much so. The final word on whether or not Sting is still a religious man. I've heard this song described as an inverse hymn of disillusionment. Hmm. That is a uh, great description. It's a great description. Coming to terms with the end of his father's life, removing his father's cross gently from the wall, a shadow still remaining. Acknowledging that he will continue to be haunted by those memories, but also acknowledging with the word gently that it's not in anger, but in respect for what his father believed. And all of these thoughts about religion are coming to a head, and it reaches its climax with all the doom and gloom and melancholy, and then it turns on a dime. It's amazing how a simple change can affect the whole outlook of a record. So right at that point of the song, he reaches a point where he doesn't want to be looked after by the angels. Cast them from his sight, he says. That we... We make our own decisions about belief, about life, about what we want, what we don't want, and disavows those angels. But it's a realization born in beauty, because at that point, the key changes from a minor key to a major key, and the song all of a sudden has hope, has joy. It gets a bounce into it. And I believe that is Sting finishing that process and knowing that he's going to be okay. And that sound sounds like this.
0: Kind of had a realization, yeah. Uh, the wild, wild sea kind of finished up, uh, Island of Souls, kind of brought it full circle. It has very similar soundings. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the angels fall, tonally similar to All This Time, mm hmm, sort of wraps that story up, too. Yep, I don't know why that just sang in. I was just like, oh, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense, but
1: just the way that song is constructed, like after what I've played, it, it actually rides out for another 90 seconds, yeah. Of- of just kind of them jamming and this beautiful part at the end. And if you listen to it all the way at the end, the song fades out and then there's this big snare drum crack. And you hear Sting say goodnight really quietly in the background, almost like it's a lullaby, like just a finishing off that end where it changed from somber to hope. And uh, it's just a, it's a wonderful record, a most underappreciated of all of Sting's work for sure. And for me, the most important, uh, it gains value every time I listen to it. And whenever I'm battling those demons of grief and loss, this is album that I return to. So it's an album of redemption and acceptance, and I think it's fantastic.
0: It made me think of grief and loss, and it was really depressing for me to do these notes and listen to this over and over yeah, for the last couple of weeks. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. So I appreciate that. Uh, yeah,
1: I continue to pick those winners <laughs> for you. Although,
0: in all honesty, this is not an album I had ever heard before. Really? Uh, Yeah. I I think, I mean, I may have heard some of these tracks before. None of them were memorable to me before this. I do like it, but I think that it is another one of the albums that goes into that folder of music that I have to be in the right mood for. Mm -hmm. This is not something I would throw on like, I'm going to do the dishes. Let's listen to the soul cages. Probably not. No. Oh, no, I'm losing a religious belief again. Scrub, scrub, <laughs> scrub, scrub. scrub. Yeah, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't work for me. No. But uh, it is, is, is a very good album. And like we've said multiple times now, loaded with incredibly talented musicians,
1: mm-hmm. um, including Sting. So that's the Soul Cages. So uh, a couple of things before we wrap up here. Kyle and I have been uh, talking for a while on how to expand what we have so yeah. we can include more music. Uh, we are excited to announce a new venture or Audio Judo. We'll be adding a second podcast to our repertoire in a couple of months, but it will take a different form than this. Uh, it's called Audio Judo Does Jazz, and it will be a limited series of 16 episodes that will take you on an introductory look at jazz and jazz artists. Uh, this will not be hosted by us, though. Uh, show consultant Chris has long desired to get his thoughts out there, and this is his baby. Kyle and I and producer Randy will co-host some episodes and offer what little insight we have and let Chris run with it. Uh, It will be hosted on the Audio Judo site, and we are anticipating an April 30th launch, which is International Jazz Day. If you have any suggestions of things you would like to hear on that or questions for Chris or any of us uh, regarding that, you can send a note to audiojudojazz at gmail.com. We are very excited to get this going, and we hope you join Chris On this adventure. Yeah. For us, if you want to get a hold of us, how would they do that, Kyle?
0: Uh, Info at audiojudo.com is probably the best way. Uh, Email us, please. Uh, We do pay pretty close attention to that. It shows up on both of our phones. Uh, So if you have questions or anything that needs our immediate attention, uh, do it there. Uh, You can also get in touch with us at facebook.com forward slash audiojudo, at audiojudo on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, You can also send us a carrier pigeon if you're into that. Uh, It'll eventually get to us,
1: I hope. Smoke signals, something like that. Smoke signals. Whatever. Yeah, you know, we'll figure it out. But other than that, uh, that's it. And we will see you. See you? You'll hear from us in a couple of weeks. We'll talk to you next time. (laughs) Thanks, everybody.